Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. And welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the award-winning producer, Caroline Norris. Hello, Hello, Caroline. Hello there. Thanks for coming along. You're welcome. Can we get the stupid question out of the way first? Yeah. What does a producer do? (laughs) Now, you sort of knew I was going to ask you that because we talked about this, didn't we? I always describe it as the producer does what's in the programme and the director does what it looks like. (laughs) That's a very good description, actually. And it's not entirely true because everything crosses over. You know, directors create content as well and actually the writers and the actors create a lot of the content. But but broadly, I'm responsible for what is in a show. If someone (laughs) complains about it, I have to write the letter. Is that the... Really? The buck stops with you. Are you the blame bucket? Yeah, well, it kind of used to. I mean, not so much anymore because especially the BBC now has whole departments for writing letters back to people who complain about things. But in the olden days, when I started off, yeah, when I used to work on Live and Kicking, which is Mm. relevant to this, if somebody wrote a complaint about something that you'd done as the assistant producer, you had to write the letter back. So, and Horrible Histories, we, we spent a lot of time writing letters. Really? A what lot did people complain about? F- oh, factual things. Oh, oh no. Yeah. Oh, Can't you just send them to Greg Jenner or someone? Here's a historian, it's his fault. Well, you had to ask Greg what the fact was and then <laughs> um, turn what he'd written into something that was less angry. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes people sometimes people write in because they regard TV as like a quiz. Yeah. They're watching it and when they spot something's wrong they put their hand up. <laughs> and it's, it's, the, it's the same thing I used to watch points of view and things as a kid and go there are people who are writing in to say I really enjoyed this programme or yeah. this programme made me think this and there are people who are writing in just to say that flag's upside down. It's exactly like that. It's written like where's Wally? Can you spot the yeah. ten deliberate mistakes? Yeah. Yeah it's people kind of going I know this bit of history. I mean Greg will tell you I used to do that in writers meetings we'd get to a bit that I knew and I'd get all excited this is my era yeah we have to write we spend spend a lot of time writing letters to people when you see the, the usual joke about a producer is they book the taxis don't they I don't I don't book taxis don't rely on me to book no, taxis no. But, <laughs> no, but this, this is throwing out the question we, we, we asked several producers this who books the taxis because yeah. there are definitely taxis yeah. or cars there cars. are super efficient people on the team who book taxis there's a production coordinator or I mean I think in radio I think the producer does everything don't they yeah I, I, uh, I, uh, yeah. I, I only I spent three months in radio following Gareth Edwards around <sighs> um, trying to learn about comedy scripts when I first got into comedy and I didn't understand it because there were no pictures and I didn't I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> cope with how you did a punchline without being able to see what people were doing I mean yeah. I, I, I listened to radio but I, I couldn't do comedy on the radio I couldn't I didn't you, know so how to do 
do it. <laughs> <laughs> but you prefer doing TV because there's a, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there, for a TV producer, there's a lot more to do than for a radio producer, isn't there? I don't know. I think radio producers do everything. Whereas in TV, you have a team that you can delegate stuff to. So I don't it's, know. It's a, bit, it's a bigger team doing a bigger project definitely a bigger team yeah doing yeah and i've just made a movie which is an even bigger team it always looks basically terrifying to me being a producer it's funny a friend of mine turned up once on the set of dead ringers and said so who's in charge of all this and there's all so we're sort of sitting on the dining bus and there's all these vans everywhere and all these people and i sort of looked around and went oh god i think i am (laughs) but it doesn't feel like that because obviously you've got you've got people who are doing each bit so you've got someone who's looking after the budget and you've got someone who's looking after the cameras and having the right equipment and you've got a director who understands what the lenses are and, and you know. I would imagine the hard thing to do is is to understand that some things aren't your responsibility to sort of say, okay, the pictures, the, the DOP will cover this, the cameraman will cover this. If someone said this is all your responsibility, my first reaction would be to go A, to go insane yeah. and B, then to buzz around all the time, really inefficiently using my time, doing other people's jobs. Definitely. When I first started making little films, I worked on Live and Kicking and I used to make those dreams come true films. Oh, yeah. And when I first started doing that, I used to think, what is my job? Because the cameraman knows what he's doing and the presenter knows what they're doing and this expert knows what they're doing and what's the point of me being here? (laughs) Existential (laughs) crisis. Yeah. And what you realise is that they don't know what you're trying to achieve in the end and they're not they're not telling the story you're telling the story so yeah i suppose that the exact equivalent would be i'm surprised i'm saying this rather than jason because he's the one who knows about this you're the conductor yeah you're not the violinist yeah the music's all coming out of the orchestra but the orchestra can't pull together unless there's someone at the front yeah and you do wonder and i wonder what the conductor's doing (laughs) (laughs) because but then when you that they did that program didn't they about conducting uh where they got yeah yeah, and it was brilliant and And it was very good faking it but they got a guy to learn it and it was really (laughs) And when people can't do it, it's rubbish. But it, but people go, what does the conductor do? It sort of keeps it all together. And try, yeah. try doing this without a conductor yeah. and you will hear yeah. what the conductor it's does. It's exactly that, actually. And of course, you know, people can do it on their own. I mean, I actually think it's much harder to do what people do online and make their own films where they literally, you know, people and people who make short films and things where you literally get it all together yourself. And these days, especially people are shooting it and editing it themselves yeah. and... For me, one of the joys of it is the team and the people that you bring in and other perspectives and, you know, and you just being able to guide that through. But you, but, but as a producer, you start with nothing. So you start with somebody saying, here's a Horrible Histories book, can you turn this into a TV show? Yeah. And you end up with 35 hours of sketch comedy <laughs> on CBBC going, I still don't know any of these facts. Greg, what's, what's the answer to this complaint? And in the course of that, you gather a team up and then that you go out on a shoot and you do all of that. And then you get into the edit and they all go away. And it's just you and the director and an, and an editor and you put it all together. So it's got it's got distinct phases. There's a, a third of it is writing and guiding writers through things or I'm, I'm going to start waffling. But the but the good, good. but the uh, there's, there's different ways of doing that so horrible histories for example as a producer was sort of my baby dominic and i we put that together we had a vision for that and we brought people in because it was it's a phenomenal team wasn't it i mean the writers the cast everything was great it was amazing it was and people say to me now 
oh, how do you how do you cast a team like a, a cast like that? You know, how do you do that? How and I, you just do what you do with everything, which is that you do the best thing. You book the best people you possibly can at the time. You do the best. You take judgment and you say, I think these people are the best people to put together. And then sometimes it works, and sometimes it yeah. doesn't. And there was a there was magic with that cast. But, yeah, you know, yeah. I, and actually, it wasn't. We didn't pick the six of them as the core six people. That sort of evolved. Some of them we already knew. We already knew Jim from Armstrong and Miller. Yeah, yeah. Ben and Zander introduced me to Jim, and Do- and Dominic had already done a Ginsters pasty advert with him. <laughs> in which that's the test. You can always when someone's given their Ginsters, you can see the, the metal of an actor. <laughs> and Jim had to eat about fifteen pasties oh. in the course of this advert. Anyway, and I knew Ben Wilbond. I knew Ben Wilbon's wife because I'd met her in a bar <laughs> over the years <laughs> and then met him and got to know him. I didn't really know him through comedy. And obviously we knew of Simon. Everybody knew who Simon was. Mm. Well, Simon had done sort of boosh and things like that. He'd He's done one all of those sorts faces of you see once and you go, Simon's performance style yeah. his face is so yeah. memorable. And Sarah Hadland was really key initially because we knew her from... Well, I feel like it was Armstrong and Miller, but of course it wasn't, because she, she was in Mitchell she and Webb. She did Mitchell and Webb. But, but, but she's really flexible, Sarah. She's brilliant. Well, and, and I remember when Don was doing Moving Wallpaper, and the, the part that Sarah played in that was this sort of dowdy, sort of shy, retiring, yeah. and Don was like, well, she can't do that, because she's too glamorous <laughs> and pretty. And he said she came in and she did this audition, and he was like, where's Sarah gone? That's incredible. Yeah. She's, she's amazing. She's a transformative so, performance. Completely, she's really yeah. So she... She was really key because Dom knew her, and so um, and having her as somebody who'd said they would do it really helped other performers go, "Oh, okay, I see. Right. Sarah's doing it." And then Martha, I didn't know at all, and <clears throat> she came in, and we thought, "Well, oh, she's really, she's really good. She yeah. stood out." And after, God, this is how long ago it was. Afterwards, I was looking back at tapes on on a v, on a VHS. Does that sound? Does Possible. that sound likely on one, on one of those tellies that had a built-in VHS, VHS machine? Yeah. Yeah. Was, production companies all had those little tellies yeah. with a VHS. Wow! Uh, and I was watching back the tapes, and I was thinking, she's also got long blonde hair. Are her and Sarah are going to look too similar. Will it work? And as I got to her audition, Giles Pilbrough, who was uh, who was our um, my co-producer on it, was sitting behind the telly and he just looked up and he said who's that and I thought right that's it decided yeah um, great you know her performance was was yeah. different and then Matt we'd spent an entire day seeing people and by the end of the day because you have about five we had about five or six scripts that we'd sent out and by the end of two days of seeing people you were they, you'd come in and say, which one are you going to do? And they'd tell you, and you think, oh, no, I've heard that sketch so many times. <laughs> I'd like to be a Viking. We all want to be Vikings. Yeah. Um, and he said, I'm going to do this. And he did these two sketches that we'd heard about 58 times that day. And he made us laugh. And he left the room, and Dom and I just went, book him. He's amazing. It's brutal, I suppose. Watching all those tapes is that terrible thing. I'm, I, God, I don't know how performers do it. Because your no. job... You have two things. The, the qualifications to become a performer are to be insecure, yes. to need the approval of others. Yes. And your job involves an industrial process by which you're rejected. Yeah. And it just seems to be like, it's like standing in front of a machine gun. And I always try to tell actors, it's, I really want you to be brilliant when you come in because you've been hearing the same thing over and over again. It, and I'm not an actor. It must be quite hard to arrange my face into a shape that looks... I mean, I look quite miserable when I'm when I'm not concentrating anyway. I keep seeing pictures of myself and thinking, is that what I look like when I'm not smiling? <laughs> 
<laughs> caught in the back of something. I've got my grandmother's scowl. So apologies to anyone. resting producer Yeah, phase, resting producer face yeah. is not good. But people come in and I say, I, I want you to be the one because I want to find the one and get out of there. Yeah. Uh, and also, the other thing is that you can't really... People say, oh, you know, I want some feedback. And you think the trouble is that generally... I'd say 85% of people that we see are really good at their jobs. It's just they're either right for the combination of people you're looking for or not. And they come in and and what I want is for them to come in and do their version of the character because there isn't a right way of doing it. And it's really hard to explain that to people who want feedback and want to know what they did wrong. In general, they didn't do anything wrong. They were really good. Just somebody else felt right and it's it's kind of you know why do you like that color and not that color it's yeah they're both it's, great it's, it's just right. one feels right or you so i mean that so that's when we did the cast for horrible histories that was what it was we knew we wanted to do it with people who were on grown-up telly basically i i always said my ambition for this show is that it, people say it's too good for children's television that's what i wanted it to be that was like, I just want people to say this is too good for kids. It's a brilliant ambition. I remember that at the time there was a little buzz going around the industry. There were two or maybe three shows at the same time who, who, yeah. who had stumbled upon the same idea, which is to say, there are, as, as the problem is now, there are not many slots for yeah. adult comedians and adult comedy writers. Comedy was, was, was narrowing its number of hours a year that were being made. There were all these people who wanted to work and were really good at working. And children's television was demanding more content. If there's a way of matching those two people up, yeah. people who could write and perform to that grade. And it was a big feeling that actually this would be great if you got the cast and the writers from Mitchell and Webb and Dead Ringers and things and shoved them on children's television. You're basically sort of retro-engineering what had happened with Do Not Adjust Your Set back yeah. in the 60s. The, or the goodies even. If you just pitch something between adult and children's, there was a, a hunger for content for sketch shows and things that there wasn't really necessarily at the time. But the, in the funny adult thing is that I didn't think let's get adult people who want to work and put them on children's television. I started from the point of view of going, I'm making a children's show. I didn't want to make any more kids' telly when they asked me to do Horrible <laughs> Histories because I'd been making it for 10 years yeah. and I'd m- gone freelance to do the second series of Armstrong and Miller. And I thought. I don't want to do any more kids' telly because. Were oh, you in the children's department? I worked in the children's. I yeah, <laughs> I worked in the children's department for ten or twelve years. In and in between, I went off and did other things. Right. So I did live and kicking for three years with with Zoe and Jamie. And in between, I went off and did things like a Ruby Wax dinner party show. Mm-hmm. Or, and sometimes I stayed in children's and did children's stuff. I was very lucky actually. I was able to kind of move around because I'd been a trainee person, BBC producer thing you know that that scheme they used to do which was amazing but when I was asked to do horrible histories I didn't want to do any more kids telly just because the budgets are smaller it's really hard work (laughs) Uh, you have to do 13 episodes in a series so you have it's basically two series every time you do something it's just hard yeah and and I thought I don't want to get pigeonholed in the freelance world as a children's producer because I know what it's like. People think, oh, that's what you do, and they won't let you do anything else. Yeah, it's very hard yeah. to break out of things when you're a freelancer. But but Armstrong and Miller had been commissioned for another series, and I thought, well, that's okay, because I can do it, and then I can do the next... And the last thing I'll have done will have been Armstrong and Miller, so I'll be okay. And Dominic was asked to do Horrible Histories at the same time, and we were in an edit together. And That's we, Dominic Brookstock. Yeah, from yeah, yeah. I said, I'll do it if you do it. And he said, oh, I'll do it if you do it. And I read the <laughs> books and I went, I don't want anyone else to do this because I can see <laughs> what this is. I can see what this is on telly. And I don't want anyone else to get their hands on this. 
And so we said, all right, well, if we're going to do it, let's do it. Let's just make a sketch show. Yeah. Just without any swearing. And actually, Terry Jones and Michael Palin had they just found a couple of lost episodes of, of um, the Complete Nuts History of Britain, mm. and they showed them at the BFI. And I'd bought tickets to this <laughs> for me and a couple of the writers. And we went along and we sat in the audience. And I watched these things, and I thought, there's just loads of people falling over and being hit over the head with frying pans. And I thought everyone laughs at the same things, like yeah. you were talking about the goodies or do yeah. not adjust your do not adjust your sets. So many of the jokes in that, they're not really for kids. No. They're just jokes. <laughs> so that's that was the attitude we wanted to go in there with. Let's get people. We had some people who had done children's shows, because I'd worked on a lot of children's shows, and we had other people who had never written for children. And it was a whole new thing for everybody because it was a factual sketch show. And one of the most terrifying things about it was when you realised that it also had to be true. Yeah. <laughs> and you suddenly went, oh, there's a whole other layer of stuff on this. That people- Whose idea was it to, to have the little that happen? And this was really true super captions because that is that, a stroke of genius well that came much later we did the sketches and then we put a show together and we took it to a school and we showed it to them and they all looked out the window <laughs> really and we went oh god that's a terrifying moment i love to sit and watch kids watching the shows they don't pretend to be interested if they're not yeah. that's what i love about kids as an audience <laughs> I like. I always say you can ask a kid what their favourite show is and they'll tell you, but if you ask them what their least favourite show is, they don't know what you're on about because they just turn it off. They're not stupid yeah. like us and watch things and complain about them. <laughs> so, And we realised we had some bits where we'd set stuff up or we had the rat explaining yeah. afterwards saying, well, that wasn't true, but this was true. And we realised that we just needed a lot more of that. And we were, in trying not to patronise children, we had gone a bit too far the other way so what we then did was we wrote some introductory stuff where we said here's where you are in the world this is what's going on and here's the sketch it's a stroke of genius and then with the rat we then we had some things where we said we might need him to say it's true or it's not true and then we ended up with just quite a lot more of that because you realized that sometimes it was quite hard to tell the difference but it, it, it helps there's there's a thing i remember saying to, to john lloyd i think we were talking about because yeah. he's very interested in sort of factual jokes and jokes that I love john lloyd. and we said to john so the accidental it turns out stroke of genius with, with horrible histories is it's got the same format as a topical show yeah everyone's read the news this week so yeah. you know when you do a joke on tracy breaks the news or something we've all agreed yeah. roughly what happened this week so that you go there with a bunch of information the great thing about doing something for kids is you can't work out what information they all know you know they all know what yeah. school's like or whatever but if at the beginning of a sketch you say here's a bunch of information you need to understand this sketch yeah that's the same as saying this is based on the newspapers this week we all agree that the vikings were like this I think that's exactly right and we hadn't realized that until we showed it to some kids and we went so that showed, so the first series changed quite a lot in the edit we had a load of ideas which we'd kind of chucked at it we knew we wanted all the elements we had the rat we had the animated stuff we had all those bits mm. in fact the idea initially was to have animated characters dragging the sketches in just for visual differences yeah. and then we realised that those characters needed to speak so the animation team had quite a lot of extra work to do <laughs> lip sync's the worst thing that's yeah. why Danger Mouse you always used to be in the dark yeah. <laughs> was it someone spotted we were working on Danger Mouse that Danger Mouse's car in the old Danger Mouse series used to come up above his mouth at the windscreen. <laughs> so and you think that is brilliant. That's, that's saving you hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah. 
So this elides nicely into <laughs> whom you have brought on to rule of three, Caroline. Yes. Yes. Tell us. Trevor and Simon. Trevor and Simon. Yes. And swing those pants full, full. Join in for a really good swing. Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-Bo. And on that farm he had a skink, skink, E-I-E-I-Bo. With a... <laughs> Probably the definitive crossover between comedians who could work for adults ending up on children's television. Yeah, well, I was thinking about what had influenced me, and I was, you know, I mean, obviously, Life of Brian is my favourite film, but everybody has seems to have done <laughs> the Python, so I thought... The thing I thought about Trevor and Simon is that when I was 16 or whatever, they, there was just comedy on a three-hour show every Saturday morning. It was just there. Yeah. And I remember, I think I said this to you once, that I didn't think I could make comedy programmes when I first started making comedy programmes because <laughs> I didn't have the entire back catalogue of Laurel and Hardy. or And everybody I'd ever met who worked in comedy was a sort of comedy aficionado. I didn't think I had the expertise to be a comedy producer. But like a closed shop? It felt just... I used to, I mean, I used to think I had to learn the rules for everything. When I first started making films, little short films, I used to think, when I know what the rules are for this, it'll be much easier. And it was only once I'd made about 10 of them that I realised there weren't any rules. Well, not really. <laughs> and that, that is that is the rule. And I thought, but I don't, you know, I was saying I don't have this background in sort of sort of being a massive comedy fan and always having wanted to do that, which everybody I spoke to seemed to be in that boat. And then I, but when I thought about it for this, I thought... Do you know, comedy was always in my life and, and Trevor and Simon were part of that. And when you were a child growing up in the 80s and early 90s, really great comedy was just a part of... It was just there, wasn't it? Well, oddly, I think Trevor and Simon, you, what you're watching there, if you were a kid, I mean, they were on uh, Live and Kicking and Going they Live. Were going, they, they, started on, they started on Going Live and, then, went to and live. then they went to Live and Kicking when it changed over. And then I worked with them on their last year of Live and Kicking, which is my first year of Live and Kicking. I got to work with them. and then so they, they, they were and then doing they, that and they were, they were on there and they were effectively, if you were a kid, you wouldn't have watched the young ones a kick up the 80s yeah. Monty Python because they were on late night yeah they would be a sketch they were doing sketches they were doing yeah. character sketches they were doing char- they were doing double act comedy yeah they were doing so you'd have seen that before you knew what it was and exactly. I think the comparison now is the number of kids I know who for whom Horrible Histories was their Monty Python yeah they grew up with a a multi-member uh, character well-informed sketch group yeah before they had to stay up late and watch it with their mum or dad and late before night. they really know, knew what what co- sketch comedy was yeah, yeah. and that, that's I think that's why I thought that they I thought I realised what an influence that had had on me oh, oh it's the worst thing I've ever smelt in the world oh, it's terrible oh, put the top back on oh, oh I will oh, oh, oh there's some writing on it what does this say 1981 King's Hospital <laughs> oh yes I remember now yes April 1981 yes I had a particularly bad case of that bile I get in my stomach yeah. <laughs> The hospital asked me for a sample. I wondered where it had gone. (laughs) Two things about them, actually. One is it's sketch comedy, but in a kid's environment. And the other thing is that it felt like they were for you. I mean, to be honest, I was probably a teenager by the time they came on. I did grow up with the young ones. But even, you know, as a a teenager watching that, and everybody, we all used to watch Saturday morning telly and we all used to. But they were for you as a viewer. 
they they felt like when the pop star came on and they took the piss out of Kylie or yeah. Sting or whoever, you felt like they were bringing that person into your world and into your bit of fun. I was thinking yeah. it, it was like Smash Hits of the time. Very Smash lovely. Hits yes. was Smash yes. Hits was this magazine that you went. This is mine. This is my funny friends. And they're doing jokes about these people and the ones who join in, you go, you're really good fun. Let's get our special guest out here. He knows all about these things. You see, our special guest today is a very old man. Please welcome our ancient art expert, Mr. Phil Collins. Hello, Welcome to Art Forum. Yes, right, Phil, if, if you don't mind me saying to you, you have a very modern name for one so old. We thought you'd be called <laughs> Moses or Ezekiel or something. Yeah. Well, I'm not really that old. You know, I don't know quite where you got that idea from, but oh. um, in fact, I think of being quite rude, really. I made this note this morning, and I was thinking back to... I was listening to an interview with, with Trevor and Simon, they were talking about the first time they ever got Kylie Minogue on. Yeah. And she was an up-and-coming pop star rather than a sort of pop goddess at that point. And they got her to get into a cardboard box full of straw <laughs> as if she'd been hibernating <laughs> and was the baby to tortoise. Yeah. And they said she was willing to do it. And they went when she came back and she was a much bigger pop star, she was less willing to join in. And I thought this reminds me of something that happened about five years later in adult television, which is the moment that Graham Norton realised yeah. that the way you interview a celebrity it's, isn't it's, to ask their anecdote, it's see if they're a good sport. It's exactly that. I thought that I think that the tone of what Trevor and Simon did and the tone of Ant and Deck, it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, the way that they laugh at people on, on I'm a celebrity, it's it's not horrible. It's inclusive and mm. we're all we all know how ridiculous this is. They've invented a village of characters which include their characters, but also include pop stars. They also include yeah. Jason Donovan and, and whoever, Bross, or whoever and they've like got Lou, on. And the funny thing about things like going live and, and live and kicking was they had sort of ludicrously sophisticated people on. I mean, they, I mean, I, I, when I worked on live and kicking, I looked after Mo Molum. You know, and you have Mo Molum talking to a leprechaun puppet. I mean, it was amazing. You don't get that anywhere. It was amazing. I mean, I think Ant and Deck are the only people who, but you're right, Graham Norton is exactly, it's exactly the same. It feels like Graham Norton, Ant and Deck, Trevor, they're for you as a viewer and yeah. as a producer I think that's really important talking about it now realising that this mode the way of talking about celebrity and about doing jokes they take it they come from a sketch comedy background and then they've been bolted onto a show that had celebrities on it yeah. and you think well hang on this is shooting stars yeah. this is what you do to yeah. make Vic and Bob accessible you put some pop stars you've heard of and some celebrities you've heard of this became a tone that was then through all of television and still survives today yeah. in, in celebrity and things like that. And you're watching Trevor and Simon, who, if you think back, I would struggle before you mentioned them again to go, oh, that's where that came from. And you're mm. right, it's smash hits, Trevor and Simon, Ant and Deck, Graham Norton, and that's now what our culture is. Well, I think they were doing something harder than just doing sketch comedy, though, because if you're doing a, a sketch and it's on a kids' programme, it's live as well, let's not forget that bit. <laughs> and you know. you've no idea if the person you're doing it with no. is going to be any good at it. Exactly. You you have to have a third person in there and you think, okay, well, I don't know if Chris Moyles can act. I don't know whether he's going to play along with this. I yeah. don't know whether it's going to be any fun. We have no idea how this is going to go. The stakes are really pretty high there, Actually, the only people... Now my brain's going, I'm thinking immediately of Andre Previn. Yeah. It's Eric and Ernie Andre Previn. Yeah, yeah because Someone he didn't have no rehearsal for that yeah. either. He just sort of rocked up. He came he? from New York on a flight, didn't he? And just went straight to the studio and recorded. But you'll see how important it is in the double act to trust one another and how yes. what there is in that relationship. I mean, their, their relationship is lovely. They've got a proper double act relationship. There's a very slight high status, low status that they play very delicately. I didn't realise that they're, what their background is. They're Manchester University. Yeah. And they were taught by David Mayer, Lisa Mayer's dad. Lisa Mayer, who 
about and the young ben ones. Elton. And Ben Elton was one of their tutors. So they came <laughs> ben out Ben Elton thing. was a tutor? Yeah, he, what? For, ah, he was probably PhD, a postgraduate. For his PhD, he, went, yeah. he taught them oh, some see. Greek oh, okay. tragedy. Okay. But there were drama students wow. there, and they'd come out a couple of years after Rick and Aid had gone through. Yeah. And were really bolted into it. Apparently, David Mayer used to show them videos of the young ones, because well, my daughter wrote this. Wow. And so they were completely embedded in it. And there's a lovely, it must have been the series you did, there's a video on YouTube of them on the last Live and Kicking meeting Rick and Aid in the canteen. And there's this oh, yes. lovely <laughs> dynamic between the two of them. And you go, oh, you're the big kids. Hey, look, look. It's a, hello. Yeah, a huge it's stick of dynamite. Rick Mayer and Aid. Hey, hey, hey. Hi. And your head explodes. Hi, Rick, hey. Can we sit down here? Trevor and Simon, hi. Hi, hi. And they've got such respect for them, but we come from the same background. They were alternative comedy, cabaret, double act, just like... But I think what's interesting, the other thing that I think is interesting about Trevor and Simon is that um, Chris Bellinger was the editor of... He'd done Swap Shop, Saturday Superstore. He'd invented the three-hour... Everything. He did everything, and I worked for him. He's he's a ama- He was an amazing boss. He looks the same age now as he did then, so I <laughs> what's don't... What's he done? I don't Deal know. Deal with the devil. It's all very suspicious. I've seen him recently and go... I have literally no idea how old you are. <laughs> um, what, in a Barry Cryer sense, has always been 70 or yeah. still looking really Yeah, young? I don't want to say that. It's awful. I hope he's not listening to this and me going, yeah, he's always looked 70. I, he looked 70 to me when I was <laughs> when I was 25. But he he obviously went, let's get a comedy double act on this show. I mean, I don't know where he got that idea from. And apparently they went out and looked for people and... And, and Trevor and Simon brought their tape in to Chris and he looked at it and said, well, none of this is any good apart from this joke. If you did some more stuff like this and it was something they were doing on stage where they said, we're going to do an egg and spoon race. Um, and then they put an egg and a spoon on the floor and just looked at it. <laughs> That's a proper joke. Isn't That's it, a that? good joke. All you've got to do is come up with 140 uh, more of those all you a week. To, and yeah, and, then, and sure enough, they, they did. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Very good performers as well. I was watching a, a clip this morning of um, the one where they've got Kylie Minogue on. It's a quiz and she has to answer the question, what's your name? Oh, yeah, the quiz where they always get the answers yeah. wrong. You can't say the right answer. And the way that he says, Kylie Minogue, <laughs> I just asked you what your name was. <laughs> and Kylie Minogue said, and the, the timing of it all is so, it's so perfect. It's so, it's so perfect. And the delivery. So think carefully, Kylie, when I ask you, what's your name? Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Right, you say Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> yes. Are you yes. sure? I, I won't change it, that's my answer. Okay, right. I asked Kylie Minogue... <laughs> what's your name? <laughs> Kylie Minogue said Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> the answer is Norman Tebbit. <laughs> The other thing I was going to say about it is, that, like, the singing corner, which I loved when we were at university. God, I loved the singing corner. And where you just came on and they sang at you and it was really embarrassing. Yes. Um, they were a folk act. And who would have thought that a folk act would be a funny thing for kids' telly? So that's yeah. the other thing. Is I, I th- I, it's, It seems to be a reference to the fact that for about 30 years previously... Folk had been forced on kids as as kids' yeah. telly because it was all those kind of beardy folkies who'd, who'd run the first wave of kids' telly, Backpuss's soundtrack <laughs> with folk and play away and things. Rainbow. It, it almost felt like it was a, a, a pastiche of going, why folk? Uh, yeah, but you know, that that's one of the things that I, when we were doing Horrible Histories, is that people are constantly trying to get you to get modern references in. And actually, there was something. It's <laughs> Into very, Horrible Histories. Yeah, trying to get, you know, modern, you know, can you do modern music? And we just. I just wanted to do a Smiths parody and Matt and Jim wanted to be Simon and Garfunkel. So we did that. But we said it doesn't matter as long as it's not excluding them. Yes. So long as they can laugh at it anyway. And then if you you can then realise there's more to it than that. I like the the letter we got from the mum who said her daughter, she'd shown her daughter some Adam and the Ants after we'd done the Dick Turpin song. And her her daughter said, they stole that off Horrible Histories. (laughs) (laughs) As a butcher down in Essex, I was handy with a knife. Had a sideline as a poacher, led a less than honest life. But, you know, I think that that's another thing that, that Trevor and Simon just used to have these sort of reference points that were just things that obviously made them laugh. And yeah. it's fine, so long as you're not oh, e- God, excluding do... kids or you're saying this is for you. They do yeah. a parody of French art house cinema. They do a parody yeah. of large door. Yeah. And the, the, I remember <laughs> I, I had the VHS of Trevor and Simon. I was far too old. And it opens with a proper joke. It goes, black and white French cinema. It goes, large door, brackets, large door <laughs> is the translation. <laughs> which is a proper They joke. were joyful and silly. And I think that that side of comedy, and and actually, I think at the time, I think comedy was quite, um, you know, Vic and Bob and yeah. and and young, the young ones was all quite self consciously sort of. It was quite cool. 
Yeah. And yeah, they were and, not and, very cool. And by the way, while you're name-checking those things, it did occur to me watching them back again, they are exactly the stepping stone between the alternative comedy scene and uh, Vic and Bob. Get, get two potatoes, or one potato, and cut it in half, and then use the inside to make the print. Now, you used mashed potato there, didn't you? Oh, and what? Shouldn't I have done that then, Tony? No, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. Oh. But uh, it can still be remedied, because what you have to do, scoop it up, put it in this bag here, yeah. That's right. And now it can go straight in the bin. Do you know yeah. their props rule, which I didn't realise as well, is they, they had a rule which is they would not build props. Everything had to be ready-made, which is real which Duchamp art thing. But that's but nuts on a pi- show like, like like Going Live, but, where there's literally people there whose job is to build yeah, yeah. They said it really props annoyed, for you. They said it was really annoyed. Them. There was a 50p shop in Manchester where they used to go and buy all their stuff from and say, <laughs> OK, it has to actually just be a half a, grape, a plastic grapefruit. Which, well, that's quite... A, that's quite arty, and B, it, yeah. it's very, very good for kids because kids look at it and go, oh, I've got some, I could dress up wearing some rubber gloves. Yeah. It's very, very accessible yeah. for kids to say, well, I could do my own sketches on a video recorder at home. It's just got a lovely arts and crafty feel to yeah, it. Yeah, I'd not thought about that. That's, that's, that is really true, that it meant that kids could do it themselves at home. There's nothing quite like relaxing with a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> I always say I'm the viewer. I'm the first viewer of a show. So I, my job is to go, does this make sense? Is it funny? Is it paced right for somebody who's sitting at home watching it? Yeah. Um, it's also the reason why I sit on the sofa and watch a show through in the edit, because I oh. want to imagine doing oh, that. Oh, do you? Because that's, that's the old uh, record producer's trick of putting it through the worst speakers in the studio. Always put it through the TV speakers. Once you know that it sounds good, watch it back on TV speakers. Yeah. So those. Are, I try to imagine what it's like to be... The viewer. This has got nothing to do with anything no, we're talking no, it's, about. It's, but that, but that's that's what I think my job is in terms of what's in the show, making that interesting for the viewer. And that's what I meant about Trevor and Simon being for the viewer. Yeah, it, it being about you. And it's easy. I used to say it a lot with people who were interview uh, celebrities and things. That there was a big thing when I was doing Live and Kicking, where they were, you know, going to premieres and interviewing people was a really cool thing. And people like Zoe her great skill was to feel like she was talking to them on behalf of you yeah. and not that she was going, look at me, aren't I cool talking to these people? That's but she was going, point. this is for you. But I think that's also why I like making programmes for children because when they love them, they really love them. Mm. Winnie the Pooh mm. was an absolute, was probably my first experience of comedy when I was about three. I used to get my mum to read me that story where Tigger comes to breakfast. Oh, God. Which is where Tigger gets introduced, and there's a bit in it where Eeyore gives him a thistle <laughs> and he runs round and round in circles with his tongue hanging out and says it's hot. hot and I hot, thought hot. that was hilarious because it wasn't hot, it was prickly. <laughs> so that is my first understanding of a joke, I think. Uh, and, Pooh's and full of that. Pooh's full of really good really, basic building blocks of sitcom character. Really good jokes. Yeah. They're, they're really Wall, well... Wall. And the, the clever owl who can't spell. Yes. Brilliant. Tigger explained to anybody who was listening that he hadn't had any breakfast yet. I knew there was something, said Pooh. Tiggers always eat thistles, so that's why we came to see you, Eeyore. It give, it's, it's also about bringing to it what writers and performers bring as experts to something. Yes. So, um, for example, Simon Blackwell's pilot sketches for Armstrong yes. and Miller mm. look like two posh blokes talking street slang in a posh voice. But actually... They're a lot more complicated than that. They've got a lot more depth to them than that. And that's why they are 
so brilliant. They should let us do that here, right? Because they're like restricting me as a person. They're removing my rights. We're supposed to be fighting for freedom and they're taking away my trousers. <laughs> you just want to be you, isn't it? Isn't it, though? Isn't it? We wrote someone, someone ran away to Italy. We wrote some for the second <laughs> someone series. Someone ran away to Italy? Yeah, I remember, <laughs> getting, I remember getting a call from, from Scripps who said, uh, we need some more pilot sketches for uh, for Ben and Zander. And Simon has, was like, Simon's missing. I got in touch with Simon. He said, I've run away. I've run away. I've got too much work on. And so he passed them back to us and we wrote what, I went, oh, brilliant. This is, I know how these work. They're cut and shut. They're just what you said, posh yeah. people. Uh, it's, a, it's a historical, it's basically a horrible history sketch. It's that. And we started writing them. We wrote about three. And halfway through, I went, these are really hard. They're really, really we hard. And one of, the reason, of rules. one of the reasons why Simon found them so hot, and he kept saying, I can't do any more than these, because because they need to have a proper idea at the heart of them. They needed to have a proper parallel between what has happened in the war and what teenage kids experience is. So when they're captured by the Germans and they're talking about going on a, essentially on a German exchange yeah. <laughs> and they've got flick knives and shit <laughs> and they talk funny. Those parallels are what makes it really funny and the sort of the dating things. Yeah. But, it, but it was very difficult to find things that felt like they had real substance as well. And yeah. I think that's the other thing is to make... One of the things about Horrible Histories that I think, because it's factual, it sort of is a gimme anyway, but it's got something to it that is more than just the jokes. And it's yeah. and therefore you can watch it over and over and it has a bit of content. And I love that. I love a bit of I love a bit of content in stuff. I love things that feel like they are bringing out something emotionally. I mean, I love to watch things that are just really stupid comedy. I love all that. You brought but Trevor it, and Simon. Yeah, yeah. I like to watch those sorts of things, but I wouldn't necessarily know how to produce it because I'm interested in what's on, underneath something. So I'm interested in the psychology of relationships and and then Paddington, the fact that it's also a story about immigrants. It's not yeah. just a... I personally really there's, like there's, that. There's an argument with this, which we find all the time. It's, it's a constant um, bone of contention with uh, fellow writers and things. Sometimes you want to say, oh, it's just funny. Yeah. And I always say the problem with saying it's just funny, and it's just funny, as your mantra is always, funny wins. It's just funny. Yeah, yeah God, that's brilliant. But at some point, you're going to have to persuade seven or eight other people that it is funny for it to get to a point where the audience can tell them it's funny with by laughing. Yeah. And what's really helpful is for it to be funny and. Yeah. And if it's funny and there's an emotional truth, if it's funny and authentic, if it's funny and clever, if it's, you can always hold something up yeah. as long as it's also funny and well-structured or whatever. They, they have something else as well because someone can always find something not funny. And yet sometimes and that, things are just funny, like Vic and Bob. It's what hard, what yeah, does any of yeah. that mean? Although although Vic and Bob, when they are put in shooting stars and they're put into a structure that you understand, suddenly everyone became said, much more mainstream. Everyone says it's under- about Vic and Bob. Everyone says I love them because they're crazy. And you go, what's your favourite sketch? And they go, food and drink. And I went, because it looked like food and drink. Because you understand <laughs> what the parameters of that are and yeah. therefore you understand the ridiculousness Master Chef, Noel's Addicts. Your favourite sketches very often were ones where you went, oh, I can see the edges of the box and... Even though what's wonderful about Vic and Bob is their wild invention. When they do something which is which has got no pins around it, like Catrick, which I love, yeah. it doesn't hit a mainstream audience because a lot of the audience go, they're just titting about. Yeah, and that's fine if you're... I think I think some comedy is for small groups There's of people. There's nothing wrong with titting about, is oh, there? Oh, no, no, no I mean, nothing wrong with Trevor that. and Simon are doing a lot of titting a about. A lot of titting about. I think if, if there's a funny and with them, I think it's joyous as well. Yeah. I mean, it's so joyful, their material, isn't it? And the two really? of them are obviously enjoying the shit oh, out yeah. of what they're doing. They really are having a good and time, And going, I've they? got sting and <laughs> yeah. I'm just taking the piss out of him. I'm calling and him the pe- stink. It was one of the things <laughs> that was so brilliant. Was the, 
I bet he was really into it. Yeah. So he said, oh, God, he was fine. He's the quite people good. who would join in were just amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it was so nice to discover those people were, were good fun. Is there something, oh, I don't know whether this is just a thing of mine, but there is something I so enjoy about hearing the crew laughing yeah. as well. It's like Kenny Everett noise. Yeah. It's great. It, it, sort of, it's, it sort of suggests that you're being transgressive in some way. You know, you shouldn't be doing this. You're being naughty. The crew are laughing and the audience in the room is laughing. Yeah. It's a small, it's not the same sound of of the O2 laughing at a stand-up. It's the sound of 20 people laughing. It sounds like a giggling classroom. It is a lot of cameramen uh, laughing behind their cameras. It, so it feels it, like it's a secret. It feels like it's a little secret that you then want to share because you go, like, 10 people are giggling. It feels like here are, here are our comedians and there are a load of adults genuinely laughing at this. <laughs> Therefore, the thing that I've got is making them laugh. Yeah. And that's really nice. And I think that's quite... That's that's great for a kid, isn't it? It is, you know, and it's lovely. And I think kids love that too. And yeah. One of the things, you know, when you when we made Horrible Histories and it also made adults laugh, yeah. one of the things that I said when I first started Horrible Histories was when you're eight, you don't get to tell people much. It's all people telling you stuff. You sit yeah. in school and people tell you stuff. You Everything you do, your parents already know about. You can't introduce them to things. Yeah. So... One of the things about Horrible Histories that made me so happy was that kids would go, I showed my dad this, and then oh, I came wow. downstairs and found him watching it on his own. <laughs> yeah. And as a child, yeah. to be able to introduce adults to something is incredible because you don't have that experience. I think and, my little brother introduced me to Trevor and Simon. Yeah. Which obviously the whole point of being my big brother is I get to tell him what the fuck to watch and what the fuck yeah. to listen to. Yeah. And he... Both my little brothers passed me Trevor and Simon back and said, these guys are great. And they were right. Yeah, it's so, really empowering. and it, But it's but it com- that comes from Terry, comes from the books. Yeah. Terry does that. He says, I bet your teacher doesn't know this. Yes. Or here's a fact they'll never mm. tell you. So that you feel like you've got something for you. I was reminded when I was on the way in today, uh, and I'm going to express this via the medium of fair dealing so we can put a clip in. I was reminded of the song Saturday Morning TV by Cormac, which is a a delightful thing, which is done with lots of childish instruments like recorders and glockenspiels and things. Mm. And it's just a song about sitting around in your pyjamas, eating Cocoa Pops and watching TV for three hours on a Saturday. And what a joyful release that was for a kid. Yeah. I'm Speedy Ceviche, but still in my PJs, because these were my all about me days. And Samurai Pizza Cats don't complete the facts. Sleep I lack for a piece of that. You can swing your pants if you think I'm mad. Sometimes I reminisce just to bring it back. And you think, isn't that great? That that was the bit where TV, when there weren't as many channels as there were now, said, the whole of this morning is for the kids. Yeah. That's yours. You've got this whole thing. Lions didn't concern me. Keep me from my TV fix. I get surly. You run the risk of me going live and phoning lines and five star. Yeah, they know the price. I'm a... Uh, I think Richard Herring asked him, said, were you into Tiz Wars? Which obviously is is very often seen as the ur thing of sort of anarchic kids TV. And they said, we weren't really into Tiz Wars. So they were really into the banana splits. Yeah. Ah. And there's a story, this blew my mind, my favourite Trevor and Simon sketch ever, which I used to put on compilations, I used to make video clips, which which is uh, is Wanton Nut, where they've both got the (laughs) children of the damned wigs on and they're inside a submarine. Wanton Nut, yes please. (laughs) 
I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen when I was about 20. It's, whatever. it's viscerally funny and, and defies explanation. And, and uh, Simon said, oh, yeah, that was from Banana Splits. They, were, they, uh, they used to open a door in the Banana Splits and there were these two girls, like the twins from The Shining, playing the guitar. Called the, I looked them up, they're called the Dilly Sisters. <laughs> Sisters are back. And they'd appear, and then they couldn't stop them. Every time they opened a the door, there was more of the Dilly sisters. And I went, you've made a reference to this really art thing from yeah. a really weird psychedelic 60s show because your references and your reference points are incredibly broad and you're not going for the obvious gag. They said that they thought Gunge was beneath them. Yeah. Which I love as an actor wow. for a children's presenter. We don't need to throw buckets of water at people, that's cheap. We will do references to uh, art house cinema and 60s psychedelia and things because that's what makes us laugh. Yeah, they had yeah. those two modern artists on. I, think, that <laughs> yes. they, they were, they, I can't remember what their names were now, but there were a couple of modern artists. That, but the things I loved. Hang were, on, it was, I've got it written down, oh. a list of characters here just because this made me laugh. The art critics Dominic Belgedes and right. Daniel Cakebread. Cakebread, that's right, yeah. Their names are always really brilliant, weren't they? Oh, yeah. Kennedy Kennedy. Yeah. It's just, and, again, it's all Vic and Bob Craig. And the sister uh, brothers. The sister brothers. No, they're still up there. The sister brothers. Disco, everything must go. Disco. See my brother anywhere? There I am. I've got the records. No, what about you? All right, so... Oh, yeah, no, wheeling and a-dealing. Oh, yeah, ducking and a-diving. Choosing and a-buying my cheap records from the bargain bin. You what? Nothing. Hey, let's get this disco underway, then. It's yeah. just really... But I, I'd but forgotten I, that was their catchphrase, a, do, a wheeling and a-dealing. Yeah, they, they did, I went, ducking oh, and a-diving, buying and a-selling those... Dodgy second-hand <laughs> TVs. And it, I, all the catchphrases, I thought, I thought they were someone... My brain had gone, that's Paul Whitehouse and Harry Enfield. Mm. And it's not, it's them. Yeah. Mm. They, they were good at... <laughs> <laughs> but they, I think that that didn't it that you know you could watch those other things and you understood the form of them because you'd already seen yeah. them as children and you, yeah. you kind of you go it's a gateway oh, I know, drug I know what it's a gate they're a gateway drug to other, <laughs> to other, other harder more dangerous sketch, sketch comedians <laughs> I loved uh, I used to love star driving test uh, which where they just sat in a car and someone. Someone from the production team had had to go and film a background during the week where they'd just gone around. I mean, they used to kind of, they'd be driving along and, and, and they'd be driving through a supermarket and someone would walk across <laughs> this. And it's so, it was so simple, but it looked brilliant. And that was how they, and it was t- taking your star driving test and then you had, you had to answer questions. And then, and, the, and then the video garden was the other thing I loved, where you had to water the plants. And there was obviously some bloke lying underneath the flowers winding them up it was nothing to do with how much they watered and it was not at all it was n- no- nothing about it was uh, automatic it was a it was a um, assistant stage manager clearly lying behind there getting watered by we found out recently that uh, jeff posner uh, who runs positive television uh, uh, victoria wood and things like that his first job was underneath the table for the morecambe wise breakfast stripper routine pushing the toast up <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Underneath every table is someone well, with a Paul great Smith. career ahead of them. Paul Smith, who is now, he was the head of, he used to run the Ozone, you know, the music programme, the yeah, Ozone. He used yeah. to run a lot of that music stuff. And then he's now very high up in uh, editorial policy at the BBC. He was, in fact, Gordon the Gopher. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he was the boss of the of the presentation. He He ran that department. And then would go and be Gordon the Gopher when Philip went on. <laughs> what, a, what a great double identity to have, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
And if you meet him, you just think it's very funny that that's what you then used to do. Let's <laughs> go and get under the... Ra- uh, Rattus from Horrible Histories is one of the leprechauns from Live and Kicking. Because there aren't many He was also one of the wolves on ITV. You know the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Puppeteering's a very he, small village. And he was, uh, and he was also, um, oh, God, what's his name? Oh, Gilbert. Gilbert the Alien. He was Gilbert the Alien. Well, the, the Horrible Histories guys, when they went on to do Yonderland, and we worked on Yonderland with them, they said they kept losing all their crew to Star Wars. Yeah, oh, yeah. Because there are yeah. only 20 puppeteers in there Britain. Are. The, other, the other leprechaun was Yoda's right arm. <laughs> To be how IMDb for puppeteers is done. Yoda's right arm in. Yeah. First, we are going to fry a CD Walkman. <laughs> now, firstly, take a CD Walkman like so and dip it in some wee steak. Then roll it around in breadcrumbs. Place it in a frying pan. Let's plumb it. Ah, grandy. Now, is this a pot one or a crap one? Yes, it's lighter fluid. <laughs> Good, even better. <laughs> I'd written a list of comedy on kids' telly. Yeah. That I was thinking about, because just talking about Vic Reeves, as you know, he did a thing called Ministry of Curious Stuff on CBBC as well. There was a, there was a, yeah. there was a phase when people, I think, went, ooh, this adult stuff on kids' telly really works. Does that still happen? I don't see that Harry Hill. That could have gone on. That could have gone on children's television, except it would be too expensive because it, it, yeah, obviously yeah. the number of researchers it required. It was a, a very very dense uh, procedure. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, kids kids comedy. The comedy that's on kids TV, particularly says. I mean, again, one of the things that's happened recently, and you know it from being a, being a writer, is because there are fewer and fewer slots to write on. Yeah, uh, and everyone I know who comes through and sort of goes and does their Edinburgh show and or does their sort of comes out of college and go, I'm ready to write, does their course or goes on to News Jack and, and writes some stuff for radio. Yeah. Like the first two sketches out and you go, what next? And the answer is, there's nothing. No. Uh, a lot of the, it's the show... It's very hard. What you do is you go and work in children's because yeah. they're, they're demanding 13 shows a, a, a series. There's lots of work in children's. It's good. Well, you get to Jessie, work with brilliant people. Yeah, Sam and Jesse Sam came and Jesse used to work right on Tracy Beaker, didn't they? Mm. Tracy, Be- Tracy Beaker was theirs. Loads of people who end up working in adult comedy came from children's. Loads of people who would, who probably in their heads, a bit like Trevor and Simon thought, well, I know what my career is. I'm going to go here. And then children's TV turns up and says, you can get to do quite ambitious narrative stuff we'll trust you to write 15 minutes of narrative on your own half an hour of narrative on your own we got to a point recently where we realised we'd written X half hours and how many of them have been for children was was wildly disproportionate Yeah. because it's where you learn your craft for a really demanding audience and you get to write and most of my job as a writer is waiting to be given permission to do my job yeah, yeah. as it is as an actor but Trevor and Simon I think I think struggled with the fact that it's really hard to move on from children's television once Very you've much. been labelled yeah, as a children's. And in fact, I think the people who are in Sorry You've Got No Head and then Horrible Histories already had a reputation as adult performers. That was really important. <clears throat> not, not, it, not in pornography, they hadn't done that. <laughs> <laughs> not in adult entertainment in that sense. Because Marcus Brigstock did Sorry I've Got No Head. Yeah. He, and because he already had a career in, in grown-up telly, it was exactly the fear that I had. If I do this show, yeah. will I get labelled? And I think it was hard. I think it definitely happened. I think it happened to Trevor and Simon. I think once you're a... Then you become a student favourite, and then then yeah. what do you do? They, they could be cursed to be Jeffrey Hayes from Rainbow. And he would just not be seen for anything. Because <laughs> because the answer is because you were so good at that. Yeah. You watch Jeffrey Hayes in Rainbow and go, God, who else could have pulled that off? Yeah. That's an astonishingly good performance. And Trevor and Simon, they're so good at that. 
Greg Davis I first met in children's television. He was the voice of I can't I actually can't remember what the something like dog and dinosaur or something like that. <laughs> that some animated like, thing. That's the most children's pro- if that program doesn't remember. exist yeah. they, and you've just made that it up. Program it should, doesn't, it should I get think made. it was that. It was something like that and he was the voice <laughs> of something and that's where I first met him. I looked it up on his IMDb and it's not on there. <laughs> It must be really strange as a, as a kid now growing up because so many performers go and do kids' TV as well. I and mean, it's certainly voices and things. Where suddenly someone's on TV in an adult thing and you go, is that the voice of that guy well, from Phineas and Ferb? Isn't that what happened to Jim when he did Broadchurch? People kept going, oh my God, my childhood is ruined because he was a <laughs> suspected paedophile on Broadchurch. That's right, yeah, yeah. 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 It is hard. I think it's really hard. Have a, you've got to be careful to have a varied career. Because mm. they, cl- um, they climbed it, I'm Trevor and Simon climbed into children's television because the, there was a, 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 a vacancy off, there. But they were quite, they were starting out, weren't they? They weren't, they weren't already established. No. But you know, Do Not Adjust Your Set was David Jason and Denise Coffey, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, Eric Terry I- Jones. Yeah, Eric Idle, Terry Michael Palin, Terry Jones. Whatever happened to them? Vivian I mean, Stanchel, Neil Innes. It's not a bad and Dominic, and Dominic no. Brigstock, who directed it, that was his childhood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was what he grew up on. He's much older than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he always looked 70. <laughs> yeah. Do not adjust your set. Right, well, he's suffering from pains here, ah! in the catharsis here, ah! and in the frontal epidioscope here. Ah! <laughs> but I don't believe it. Um, take your pyjamas off. We you put him on BO69. Will you take your pyjamas off? Uh, the jobbies don't give them private things unless they're... Will you take your pyjamas off? <laughs> Not the bottoms, man. This isn't a strip club. <laughs> also, I thought that Trevor and Simon weren't part of my childhood because I was a teenager by the time they arrived on TV. Yeah. So me and they, you the so same age. That just shows yeah. you how immature I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but watching any clip of them, I'm I'm still able to dial up that thrill of yeah. the Saturday morning being mine. Oh, you know, yeah. it's yeah. all there. It's Absolutely. in the DNA of what they're doing. Definitely. Parents who tell who say their kids don't have televisions or, or screen time, don't allow them three times on Saturday, are really depriving their children. Well, I, that should be cruelty. People ask me how, how I got into television, what, why I became a TV producer. And basically, I'm one of four kids and we only had one telly. I didn't even have a remote control for the first yeah. few years that I watched telly. And I used to think, oh, if this was my job, I'd be able to choose what we watch on telly because I because I'd be able to say that I had to watch it for research. That is literally why I started working in television. That is a dynamite bit of And now I don't live with my brothers and sisters, but when we get together but you won. sometimes I yeah sometimes when we get together I do go, I think I ought to watch this for research. Or I go, No, 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 I don't want to watch this. It's just I know it's rubbish, yeah. But I have to watch this for research. They don't really care about telly. <laughs> it's all about owning the buttons. Literally, it was, yeah, yeah, that's what it was about. Is this the other explanation of the question we asked at the beginning? What does the producer do? Decide what other people watch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good example. Yeah, that is, it makes me sound really bossy. I, did, I was quite a bossy child. I did used to make people do plays. I've never wanted to perform, <laughs> but I did used to make, my, to make my younger brother and sister do plays. I used to organise stuff. I was a big organiser. This is your CV has entirely come out of uh, your childhood, hasn't it? You're doing exactly the job you should be doing. I know, but and that's, and that's why. Isn't but it? that's why I say that the thing about not thinking I could do comedy because I didn't have the research background for it. I mm. wasn't obsessed with. You know, you have an enorm, an encyclopedic knowledge of comedy that I simply don't have. And you you say things about that, and I go, oh yeah, I used to watch that. I mean, I love Jeffrey Palmer. I got to work with Jeffrey Palmer on. 
on Armstrong and Miller and I had a note for him but I was too scared to give it to him because he he's so wonderful and I I just I loved all that stuff and all the sitcoms that used to be on so I did used to watch it but I wasn't obsessive about it and I wasn't obsessive about the about the structure of it or any of those sorts of things and I thought it therefore it wasn't for me but when I met Paul Schlesinger and he showed me what he was doing I went oh this is like making telly which I did know how to do but with scripts and so I went away and learned about the script bit of it by following Gareth Edwards around yeah um and just reading stuff and reading stuff and trying to get my hand in. And then they let me make a sketch show for CBBC. And I ought to apologise for anyone who wrote for that because that was me finding my feet. <laughs> um, I have a rule, actually, about when people send me stuff as a producer and someone sends me a, a script. is However wide of the mark something is, I always say, the person who sent you this thinks it's good. It's They haven't written something that on purpose that's shit (laughs) yeah so one of the things that i think is really important is that you have to look for the thing they're trying to do they might not have successfully managed (laughs) to structure it in a way that sells the joke but they're trying to communicate a joke in there or they're trying to sometimes it's just brilliant and it works and you have to ask yourself why does that work and you have to learn why that's why that works but basically everyone is trying to send you something that has a joke in it and sometimes even if the form of it doesn't work at the heart of it you'll find something really funny that you can that you can get them to rework and go as I'm talking about being a being the first viewer is that you say I didn't understand the joke you were trying to communicate so if you restructure it like this that sells the joke to me better yeah that was one of the first notes we ever got from a script editor when we were still teenagers and we were submitting stuff we sent the script we thought was the funniest thing we'd ever written and then it came back lads it might be a good idea if you knew what this was about before you started writing it yeah and I went I got really cross and snotty because I was about 19 and I thought afterwards no, I don't, because that means I'm not communicating anything. And actually, the first thing, first person who reads it is your producer or script editor, and there should be a clue in it as to what the hell you were trying it's to like do. It's like being if a stand-up, isn't it? Then I think that's why lots of sketch writers are people who've performed on stage because you go and people either laugh or they don't. You can hone things, and you it teaches you that you can, you know, you can make things better or you can communicate them better. And it doesn't mean doesn't mean the joke is shit if the person didn't laugh at it. It just means it wasn't structured right. Or And that's one of the things that I think my job is to, to think. It's very... Ex- I, when you, I, start, I started writing a few bits and pieces and it's very exposing. I can't produce my own stuff. I need somebody else to tell me if it's funny or not. You're no judge. I'm, I'm a rubbish judge of my own work because it's so hard to get what's in your head out and to know how much you need to tell people. I couldn't produce my own work. I can read somebody else's and go, it's blatantly obvious what needs doing here. But I've written my own things and then when someone's given me the no- the notes, I go, oh yeah. So I think it's really important to have a producer that you trust, but it doesn't mean that every producer can produce anything. I think it's as important for a writer to feel comfortable with the producer they're given. I have to feel, if I go and see somebody about a job, I have to feel that they also think I have something to add or that I can yeah. contribute. We've because been working together. You've got to be... You're absolutely working together. And you and somebody who can... We, when we just did this, the Horrible Histories movie and Mark Burton read it at the end and came back with some notes that we just went, yes, that is the thing we needed to know. <laughs> Whether if we'd asked him earlier, I don't know whether I don't I don't know, but it was so useful at that moment. And you just went, that's what you need. And that is the and he was slightly embarrassed going, you need to really change this whole thing around here. 
and I think he was thinking, oh, God, I know what it's yeah. like to get a note like this. But we were like, yes, God, that is exactly what it needs. And then we spent two weeks of hell redoing that. But it made all the difference. So yeah. that's what I want to be able to be as a producer, is somebody who can help you to put what you want to put on screen. But what you're talking about there is something which is, I think, why a background in children's really helps. Yeah. Because you are, obviously, your reaction in your heart is to the piece of work when it arrives at you. Yes. It's one thing. But then you also have to go, and I'm imagining I am nine. Yes. And I think for a writer or a performer, it's very, very hard to distance yourself from your work enough to be able to go, but nine-year-olds won't get this. Yes. And one of the good things a producer can do is, I can see what you're doing. I don't think your audience is going to react. So basically, no one's done any favours by you going out there and dying with this. And watching someone like Trevor and Simon calibrate their act for a younger audience yes. when they'd been very political and very adult before. They have obviously worked with a production team to come up with a form of their comedy that gets to an audience. And that is not just two great performers working, two good writers working, but also it's a whole production team saying, we will make something delightful aimed at an audience who will grab this to their hearts. I was allowed to make my own mistakes. And I think with Trevor and Simon, I... I've read something with Trevor saying he once off the cuff said something political on the show and at the end of it Chris just said to him don't ever do that again. It was straight down the lens uh they were doing some raising some money for an intensive care unit for NHS for Blue Peter Appeal and he straight down the lens says shouldn't the government be doing this? <laughs> you, know, you have just crossed the line yeah, yeah. of yeah, your but that's agreement. Also very funny. Isn't it is it? funny. Oh, it satire. is funny but but you know that's uh, exactly but, yeah. but you know you were allowed to make those mistakes. And Chris didn't kind of go you're fired and he just said yes. don't don't ever do that again. And that was it. And Brilliant. Chris was so good. That's I was allowed to make mistakes and learn from my mistakes because you learn an awful lot more from somebody writing you a letter saying, why did you do that, than yeah. from being hamstrung on the journey. But you're right. Children's television is a really good training ground for understanding different sorts of audience. And in fact, it's made me think, you know, things like Vic and Bob and The Mighty Boosh were all on BBC Two, where I think you can have comedy that is its own thing and its audience will find it. It can be quite niche. It doesn't have to be, but it can be quite niche. And then you have stuff that you're trying to appeal to a more mainstream audience or people that are not you. And then you have to be able to imagine yourself in that situation. And so with Trevor and Simon, they Chris went, this joke here works for what we're doing. Egg and spoon. The egg and the spoon. <laughs> Who wouldn't laugh at that? <laughs> These jokes work for us. Do more like that. So, you know, put aside this bit of what you do. It doesn't mean you have to put it aside forever. Mm. Although... I think that might be, that's the challenge. How do you get to then also do the bit yeah. that isn't the thing people fell in love with? I don't know. Do you have to put that to one side? Any artist I don't know. struggles with that, though. It's hard, it? yeah, it's that, really that, hard. The, the thing that somebody, yes, yes, you're right, the musician and the, the solo career and mm. the, yeah, mm. I guess that's... It's know, inherent what, in the system. It is, what people connect with. And I think I'm always... I'm lucky because as a producer, I don't get that from the public. I'm allowed to go and make other things if I want to. Yeah. Because I remember saying this to um, to Ben and Zander. I remember saying to them, you know, in the end, if we if we disagree about a sketch, you win because it's your name above the shop, not mine. No one's <laughs> going to say I'm not funny. They'll say you're not funny. So, yeah. you know, you're the ones taking the risk. Yeah. You know, with a writer, it's the same. If it's a writer's vision... You're there to try and help them put that on telly, basically. But my job is I represent the audience, I think. Yeah, I suppose so, yes. And that's why I always say to people, who's it for? What channel's it for? What slot's it for? Where does it sit? And I spend a lot of time imagining, OK, so I've just watched EastEnders. What feel? What If they're looking for something for that slot, what 
mood yeah. are you in when that happens? Yeah. What sort yeah. of thing do you want to watch? In fact, it's uh, Kevin Ligo says they don't really do much comedy on ITV because the soaps do it for them. And once you've watched half an oh, hour of Coronation wow. Street, which is really funny, it's very hard to find a sitcom that breaks through. So Benidorm was on at nine o'clock, wasn't it? So you'd have something... So it put some distance between Coronation di- Street yeah. and... Because Coronation Street is sort of is their comedy because it does... Although it's not just comedy, but it is... Also, it's set in the opposite weather, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah. Weather's very important. (laughs) Always choose your weather. Imagine your audience's response to the weather first. Yeah, yeah. I like that notion, though, uh, of of you being the first viewer. I think that's that's a very sound thing to bear in mind, actually. Yeah, and that goes back to, you see, choosing what you watch on the telly. Yeah, yeah. In your family. I will <laughs> own very the important, Very important to have control of the remote control. <laughs> what a lovely place to end. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. For bringing on Trevor and Simon. Thank you, Caroline, Caroline Norris. You're very welcome. It's Ron, actually, mate. It's Ron. All right, now we're uh, Ron. How old are you, then? What? Uh, oh, uh, I'm ten. Uh, I'm ten years old. My goodness yeah. me, how's about that then? You have written to me and you have said, Dear Tim, can you fix it for me to fly to Brazil? Well, my goodness me, a little boy like you, why do you want to fly to the other side of the world? Oh, well, it's just uh, me and the boys, right? We uh, Now then, we, uh... Ron, who are the boys? Oh, yeah, the boys. Uh, oh, well, they're just some mates of mine, you know, uh, workmates. Uh, schoolmates, schoolmates, that's all. And yeah. how old are you, Ron? I'm uh, 35. Ten, ten, I'm, I'm ten. OK. It's just uh, me and the boys, right? We, we, we met in the pub, in the bank, uh, in the playground, in the playground. We met in the playground and we decided I had to get away quick. Uh, g- g- Get away from it all, sort sort of thing. Look, are you going to fix it for me or not? Oh, mate? no, whoa, 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 what is this for me? Oh, no, wow. People are so kind to me. They give me gifts all the time, indeed. A case full of cigars. No, no, it's not cigars. It's, oh, it's, wow. It's, 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 wow, no, wow. Thousands of pounds all for me. Look at these Dwayne Eddies. Oh, wow, yes, indeed. Right, it's mine, wow. it's mine, mate. Don't you worry yourself, young man. You have got your Tim Fixed It For Me medal. You have got a case full of thousands of Dwayne Eddies and you have got two tickets to fly to Rio de Janeiro. Uh, yeah. Yes, well, I'm going to come with you. Come on, let's run to the airport. God bless. Go on. Oh, my goodness me.